Happy first Sunday of 2021. Can I just say, I hate New Year's. It's just, it's the worst. You have to go through this whole process, right? There's this expectation that you have to reflect on the previous year and you've got to like come up with something good that happened, some like lesson that you learned or experience that you had that made you a better person. And as if that's not bad enough, then you're expected to like think about the next year, like think about the space that we're moving into and come up with some goals. Come up with like an imagination of what kind of person you want to be by the end of the year. Put out some things that you want to actually accomplish and then you have to go and do them. It's just the worst. It's so much work and I don't enjoy it. And it takes so much time here at the new year when I'd rather just not reflect on anything (laughs) and not try to imagine myself as a better person than I am right now. But this is what we do. Google, this past week, they released a report on what their most searched for word was in 2020 or the word that showed up most frequently in their Google search bar throughout the whole year. Any guesses? Peace? No. The word was why. Why? And it makes so much sense, right? Why can't I sleep? Why is it called COVID-19? Why are the schools closed? Why isn't the NBA playing? Why is toilet paper sold out? Why is the sky orange? Why is Australia on fire? Why are people protesting? Why, why, why? Because we're meaning makers, right? That this is what we do. We're searching for meaning. We are rational beings and we want to know why because we need a reason. We need to know that all of this isn't just for nothing, but that there's some purpose, some meaning behind everything that's happening. There has to be a why. And why is this question that has made room for all kinds of human innovation, right? It's the thing that has caused us to be more empathetic. It has caused progress. It's developed understanding between people. And in a year of the most uncertainty that we've faced in a long time, we continued in 2020 to ask the question, why? Historian Yuval Harari He points out that as we reflect on the past, we often spend so much time asking this question, why? And we don't spend enough time considering what to do about it. In other words, he's suggesting that we dwell too long on the causes and we don't spend enough time considering the consequences. And so while a lot of us spent 2020 asking, why is the world this way? I think the opportunity for us moving into 2021 
is now, what do we do now? What now? Given all that we know, all that we've seen, all that we have experienced, what do we do now as a people? This is a great question for us to ask, not only as individuals, and think about how this affects us personally, but I think also as a community of faith, as a body of believers in Tulsa, Oklahoma, given everything we experienced in the past 12 months, we've worked through some of the why, and now we need to move on to what now. I love this text that Father Brent read for us this morning. And the word became flesh. One theologian was asked to summarize the entire gospel in four words. And his response was, the word became flesh. That's it. That is the story of the good news for us. That the God, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, comes to us. And doesn't just come to us, but becomes one of us. When we read John's gospel, we see that it's unique when we set it aside from the other gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that John doesn't open up with just a history or even just the very beginning of Jesus' story. John is actually reaching back, very casually recasting all of history. He goes back to, in the beginning was the word. From the get-go, John is inviting us to take seriously this business of the incarnation. God made flesh. I think it's hard for us as human beings in all times, really, but especially as 21st century beings to begin to imagine the implications of this event. That God, the creator of the universe, takes on skin and bone and becomes one of us. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And while we could spend time asking why, why would God come to us? This God who has no need, this God who has created heaven and earth, why? We're really left asking the question, what now? Now that this has happened and this is our reality, what now? What does it mean for us? You know, if we announced today that God has come and God has landed in Broken Arrow, some of you would join Nathaniel, right, and saying, well, can anything good come out of Broken Arrow? And others of you just wouldn't flat out believe it at all. Not even a little bit. But this is the reality of the incarnation, that Christ, the Messiah, the peace of the world has somehow broken into our existence. And not just in one place, in one particular time, but in all places, in all times, Christ has broken into our world. The peace of the world has come to us. This whole idea is so crazy, it's so impossible that it just can't possibly be true. And yet so many of us 
have had these moments, these experiences when God has crept in, has snuck up in our lives, broken into our reality, whether we've been able to find words to describe it and explain it or not. I remember when I was five years old, back in the 1900s, and while my mom was tucking me into bed one night, she asked me the question, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? Now, as a pastor's kid, I wasn't exactly sure how to respond, but I thought it's probably a good idea to like cover my bases, and so yes, let's, let's do this. I mean, this is the family business, right? So we prayed together, and I invited Jesus to come into my heart. And when you ask Jesus to come into your heart when you're five years old, you can't really say that there was like a dramatic life change, right? It's not like I was five years old, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, and he like delivered me from a drinking problem, right? Or like saved me from that biker gang. I mean, you're five, But what I know is that my life could have been much, much different if it weren't for the grace of God. What I know is that just a handful of years later, my parents would get divorced, that the church my grandfather started would split and die off. And while most people have the luxury of at least letting these kind of massive moments in your lives happen, at least privately, within your own family. Ours was published on the front news of the local newspaper just because people happened to know about our church. And so there were so many opportunities for me to become bitter and to turn my back on the church, this place that had caused so much pain and confusion in my life, even as just a little kid but it was by the grace of God that I continued to love the church, to love this ragtag group of broken people. As Augustine supposedly said, the church is a whore, but the church is my mother. (laughs) What I know is that I've had experiences with this living God that I can't fully explain, and chances are you have too. That's why you're here today. Chances are you've had these moments when God broke into your life, a moment of deep passion and piety and emotion. And let me confess that I think one of the criticisms of a community like Sanctuary is that we are lacking some of that passion or emotion that we're so used to because we've embraced dead religion, right? A couple words about that. To be sure, tradition on its own is dead. It's wooden, it's rote, it's lifeless. But the project of sanctuary is the work of knowing deep in our bones that we need these passionate beautiful, emotion-filled experiences with God, moments that we must commit to doing a better job at fighting for, all the while contending for the fact that a full, robust, deep spirituality comes by way of practice and tradition, and dare I say, 
religion. If you're wondering why we're so committed to this project, it's because so many of us came up with a faith that was informed by this progressive ideology, the same ideology that America was founded on, this, this idea that life is just going to get better and better, that progress was on this linear line, right, that it's only going up, this idea that progress just keeps coming to us, that life gets better it's like that, oh, if you saw the Wonder Woman movie, the new one, I'm sorry, but it's like that guy, he's like, life is good, but it could be better. This is the idea that we bought into, that life can always be better. And so in doing so, we clenched on to scriptures like this one that we find in 1 John, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Yes. Absolutely. And so if we just had enough faith, if we had just enough passion, God would actually save us from experiencing any pain or any trouble or any sorrow because God is going to overcome the world. Now, this is true in one sense, that you and God can take whatever the world throws at you. You can overcome in one sense. But what's not true is that if you're just close enough to God, if you're just passionate enough about God, that your life will only ever get better. It's just a lie. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that life can get worse. Life can get harder. Pain can creep in to our lives, regardless of how passionately we love God. It's a theology that leaves no room for suffering. And life is full of suffering. Today is the 10th day of Christmas tide. The celebration of Christmas has continued here even into this new year. We celebrate Christmas all the way up until January 6th, which is Epiphany. And in these first days after Christmas, we're told this story of the holy innocents, those children who were torn from their parents' arms, who were killed right in front of their parents. Think about this for just a moment. These families that had their babies, these little ones ripped from their hands and murdered. Where was the peace of the world then? For these people, this Advent hope of waiting for a Messiah seemed to just end in utter tragedy. Obviously, this is the dark side of Christmas. This is the uncomfortable part of Christmas, but it's part that I'm so grateful doesn't get left out of our celebration of this season because it causes us to be honest about the pain in the world, that we don't shy away from it, we don't pretend that it doesn't exist. The fact is this tension of Jesus coming into the world over and against this destruction of these children, it points out the way that life works out for us on this planet, that it's life that is all wrapped up in celebration and hope and joy and peace and love and at the very same time, destruction and pain 
and suffering and longing. There's so much good and so much evil, and we as human beings taste both. Part of the challenge of faith is to learn how to process and how to dance with both of these realities. This is why sanctuary follows the church calendar, because we need to be thrust into seasons right into the heart of these moments of longing, into the heart of these moments of hunger, of seasons of suffering, because we would never choose it for ourselves if we were given the choice. And what we see is that we learn to suffer well. That our suffering doesn't have to be wrapped up in shame or embarrassment or judgment but we can be supported and held up by a community of faith who also knows what it is to suffer, that we are held by a God who came and suffered with us, suffers alongside us. This is why I can say that I believe ever since that moment when I was five years old, back in the 1900s, (laughs) that I've sensed that Christ is with me. Because since that moment, I've carried this kind of, I'm not really sure what else to call it other than a responsibility for the church. Now, some of this, of course, is just being a PK, being a pastor's kid. So don't get me wrong. I mean, you are the first to arrive. You're the last ones to leave. This is just part of the gig, right? But Even as I became an adult and I had more freedom to do what I wanted, I still found myself giving my time and my energies and my money to the church. And then as I grew older, I found myself continuing to be committed to this thing. There was a time about five years ago when my wife and I kind of stepped out of any kind of formal sort of ministry and moved off to New York City, and it was a lot of fun. And I had an awesome job that I really loved in a city that was super fun. But even as we did all of those things, I still felt this tug that what I was really supposed to be doing was being a part of the church, caring for God's people. Like it or not, that's how you ended up with us (laughs) here at Sanctuary. And I think there are some of you who carry this kind of responsibility. This is something of how you see the church, that it's something that you want to give yourself to more than just attending and more than just being a lay person in the community. There's nothing wrong with that, but some of you have this sense that this is your church, that you're called on some level to care for this place and for these people. Some of you may even feel some kind of draw toward ordained ministry as a deacon and finding out what it means to serve in this context in that way. And if that's true, and if that is you, lean into it. Pray into it. Let's talk about that. Because some of you do carry this sense of responsibility for this place. But all of this comes to us. All of it happens because the word was made flesh. The light of the world has really come, and not just into my life personally for me, for my benefit, but into all of creation, even in Broken Arrow. God has come. 
And if this whole incarnation business is true, if, if God and all of God's glory really took on our flesh and blood, then there are certain things that are just true about our inherent human dignity that we simply fail to acknowledge from time to time. At Sanctuary, we want to be people who recognize the inherent human, human dignity in all people, understanding that God loves all people, that God and his son Jesus Christ came for all people. God cares for all people. God came and lived and died and was resurrected for all people. Not just the ones that we think we can get something from in return. I think this is part of the danger of this present moment. From time to time we get... (laughs) We get some complaints from well-meaning folks who wish that we would say more about particular things, who wish that we would make an official statement or take an official stance on this issue or that issue. And I know there are certain issues that people are passionate about. I get that. But this week I was reminded of this story of some folks who had gone to serve for a few days in Calcutta at the place where Mother Teresa gave and served for most of her life. And this is what they wrote of their experience. They said, through that experience, we finally met a conservative yet fully contemporary form of religious life that we could trust. The sisters were not rigid. Rather, they were simply devoted women. They did not need security or answers and order as we see in most traditional movements. In fact, they were willing to live without security, with very few answers to their questions of mind and heart, and amid almost total disorder. They lived that amazing and rare combination of utter groundedness and constant risk-taking that always characterizes the true gospel. They said, the sisters didn't waste time fixing or controlling or even needing to understand what is wrong with other people. (laughs) Instead, they put all of their time and energy into letting God change them. From that transformed place, they served and carry the pain of the world, which they are convinced is the pain of God. This is the synthesis on a communal level of what we were always seeking. Eventually, one of these people asks one of the sisters, why did Mother Teresa not speak out against social injustice? Why did she not point out the evil systems and the evil people that are chewing up the poor? Why did she not risk some of her moral capital to call the world and even the church to much-needed reform? They said the answer was calm, immediate, and firsthand, meaning they heard it from her own mouth. Mother Teresa felt that if she took sides or she played the firebrand, that she could not be what Jesus had told her to be, love to and for all. She said that if she started correcting and pointing out sinners, that she could no longer be an instrument of love and reconciliation for them. Humiliated and defensive people do not change. They said that her vocation in the church was to be love. 
She knew that her primary message had to be her life itself, not words or arguments or accusations. See, this is why we have to be careful that in our critiques and our speaking out, that we don't make anyone feel humiliated, that we don't take up a posture of defensiveness because as we just heard, humiliated and defensive people do not change. The only power that exists to change people is the love and the light of Christ. And the best we can hope for is to embody that love as faithful witnesses, as people who live in a land that others would like to live in, to be people who lead trustworthy lives, as Rowan Williams would say, for the gospel. As I read this story this week, it got me thinking about sanctuary and about what kind of future we might imagine for her, for us. You know, for such a long time, sanctuary has been a community of why? After going through so many shifts and transitions from our worship to celebrating the Eucharist weekly to occasionally baptizing babies, our clergy wearing collars and fancy dresses from time to time, we've exerted so much energy and so much time answering the question, why? Why do we do that? And rightfully so. None of that has been time wasted. But I do think, in becoming more and more convinced, that for us to continue being faithful to one another, to have this sense of who we are, that we have to start asking different questions. There's room for the wise, to be sure, We're going to be talking about our confirmation process through this course called Confirm, Not Conform. And you'll be hearing more about that in the next couple of weeks. But we have to start asking the question, what now? Given all that we know, all that we've experienced, all that we've seen, what now? So a couple of things. First, and we're going to do this quickly, I think we ought to be people who are committed to what Rowan Williams calls a fruitful confusion. This term that Rowan Williams uses, he uses it as a way of saying that our commitment is genuine and our understanding is growing. This is what he means by fruitful confusion. And I think that what is most human is our involvement with one another, how we exist with one another and make space for that confusion, for that understanding to continue to grow. And I don't think we'll ever get this perfectly right, but we still want to exist in a way like Mother Teresa suggests, in a way that doesn't strive to humiliate one another or cause the other to become defensive, but to make space for this fruitful confusion. That we continue to be committed to one another and to this community as our understanding of each other, our understanding of ourselves continues to grow. Now it's impossible to be a faithful community of fruitful confusion unless there is a deep, true commitment to one another's well-being. That what we find is that as the body of Christ, the well-being of other people, the good of others is all wrapped up in our own well-being, is all wrapped up 
in our own good. It's so tied up that other people's hurts actually become my hurts. This is what I mean when I say a fruitful confusion. Second, and this is a strange one, I think we can become a community that abandons any self-serving myths about ourselves. Now, what does that mean? Well, self-serving myths include anything that we think about ourselves that simply aren't true. For a church community, the most obvious self-serving myth is this idea that we are better than them. (laughs) And conversely, the second most obvious self-serving myth is that we are not as good as them. But maybe the most dominant self-serving myth is this idea that there's any such thing as us and them. It's this idea that we can come fully ourselves, that we don't have to come into this space pretending to be anything that we aren't. In talking about prayer, C.S. Lewis says that we, we ought to pray as the person that we really are, not as the person that we would like to be. That's something of what it means to abandon these self-serving myths about ourselves, that we can bring our full self, our full person, our full humanity into this community without fear of judgment, trusting God to do the work. Finally, and I'm trying to land this plane quickly because we're out of time. I think sanctuary is called to be people of two kinds of spiritualities. That we need this deep, passionate, life-filled, charismatic spirituality that it's held in tension with the beautiful, life-giving, suffer-bearing tradition of the historical church. That we are people who contend for encounters with the living God in ways that are undeniable while also celebrating these ancient practices of the Christian faith that mark us out as the people of God. Practices like Eucharist and baptism, reconciliation. And this doesn't mean that we just dial up the passion in our services by way of trying to manipulate anything. It just means that we learn to honestly respond to God, to God's presence. I want to leave us with this prayer from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a prayer that he wrote while in a Nazi prison, and it's a prayer that speaks to this tension that we face, this tension that the light of the world has broken into our lives, but still there's pain. The tension that we are the people of God, but we're still learning to live faithfully with one another. The tension that peace has come into the world, yet still so much remains broken. Hear this prayer. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me alone. I am feeble of heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. 
You know all man's troubles. You abide with me when all men fail me. You remember and seek me. It is your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and follow. Help me. Amen.